Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you all and to worship with you. A special welcome to all you kids that are out there on this family worship morning. We are so, so glad that you are with us, too. As we begin, I want you to think about a time when you lost something. Maybe something very dear to yourself. Remember what that felt like when you realized that it was missing? Remember all that went through your head? Maybe you started to feel panicked. Maybe you started to just not be able to get it out of your head, trying to figure out where did I last see that thing that was lost. And then I want, to think, want you to think about when you found it and how that felt. You know, the relief, the joy, maybe you're ready to celebrate a little bit. Now, whenever I think about losing something, I can't help but think about my son, Soren, because we lost him all the time when he was little. One time, it caused the, the shutdown of Gap in Woodbury. Another time, we were at REI, and they had to mobilize the whole staff to try to find him. But there was one particular time when I was absolutely freaked out. We were at the crashed ice event over in St. Paul one January. I think it was the second year that they ever did it. If you don't know what crashed ice is, they put this big track uh, down the hill in front of the cathedral, and it's covered in ice. And then they send four ice skaters down the track at high speeds. And it's really fun to watch. So we staked out the perfect spot at the finish line, and there were like 200,000 people in attendance. So after we watched the end for a while, we thought, well, it would be kind of fun to see the starting point, see what that was like. And so I took Soren up to the top of the hill. And we walked up the road and kind of got through the crowd. We got to the starting point, and we watched that for a while. It was awesome. It's getting really cold out because it's January, and so we decided to go back and find Lex and Elise. And so we're walking down the hill on the road, and at just the wrong time, Soren decides to dart out front. And I'm thinking, this isn't good. And I try to reach for him. And right when I do, the two people in front of us come together. And I hit their back. And I can't reach him. And next thing I know, he is gone. And I'm thinking, my wife is going to kill me. And so I'm trying to decide what's the best thing to do at this moment because, you know, sometimes I remember being told, well, if you're lost, you should stay in the same spot. But then I'm like, well, I'm not lost. I'm trying to find somebody who is lost. So I just start running in circles, basically. I am panicking, like we're never going to see him again. What's going to happen? And so as I'm running down the hill, just aimlessly panicking, I run smack dab into Lex, and she's running too. Because you see what happened, he remembered her cell phone number, and somebody said, hey, you look like you're lost. And she called Lex, but didn't really describe where they were at. So both of us ran into each other knowing that Soren was missing. Well, as you can probably figure out, we did eventually find him, and it was a source of joy and celebration, and we were out of there immediately, because it's an amazing feeling when something is lost and then it's found. It certainly is a cause for celebration and for joy and for relief. Now, God has a heart for lost people. We see it all through Scripture. God is on a mission to find lost people. When Jesus describes what he was sent in the world to do, he says, I came to seek and to save the lost. He's all about finding people. Now, we're in the middle of this series, or actually at the end of this series, called Shift. And what this series has been about is how we as a church and we as Christians need to be willing to shift 
the way that we do things. We need to shift our mindset. We need to shift our practices. We need to shift what it means to be the church because when we look around, we are not doing a good job at fulfilling our mission. You see, we see all kinds of depressing statistics. Over 80% of churches are plateaued or dying in America. The average church has less than one person come to faith every year. We see how the amount of people that consider themselves not religious or de-churched or unchurched grows exponentially every single year. We're not doing a very good job fulfilling the mission that God has given us. And if we want to fulfill our mission, if we want to see those numbers turn around, we need to shift. We need to be willing to make some big changes and how we do things. So a number of weeks ago when we kicked the series off, we talked about how we need to be willing to shift from coasting to growing. You know, a lot of times we approach faith like something we kind of opt into. Maybe we get baptized, confirmed, and then we just sit back and we get to be comfortable. Maybe we come and hang out with other Christians a little bit, but we basically are just kind of waiting around until we get to go to heaven one day. But in the Bible, again and again, we're challenged to keep growing, not to be coasting. What we like to say is following Jesus is always a growing experience. There's always another step of faith that we can take. Now, maybe you've been a follower of Jesus your entire life, 75 years even. Well, there's still another step that you can take. And maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you've only been following Jesus for a few days. There is, of course, another step you can take. And anywhere in between, every one of us should be just like the Apostle Paul, considering our faith journey to be like a race, running and running and growing till our final days on earth. Well, then the next week, Pastor Jason preached about how we need to approach Christianity not as a religion, but as a relationship. You know, religion is all about following rules. It's all about legalism. It's all about kind of coming together and who's in and who's out and all these kind of things. But instead, what Jesus invites us to is so much more exciting than that. He invites us into a living relationship with him. And that changes everything. It's alive and it's exciting and it's positive. It's something that we can share with others. I think it's compelling to an unbelieving world. Let's not be content to just go through the motions in a religion, but instead let's live out that relationship and invite other people in. Well, then last week, if you were here, we talked about how we need to shift from being consumers to being contributors. And you know, so much of our society is based on the idea that we are consumers and that people should cater to our needs and what we want and we should be able to have any of our preferences. And that has seeped into the church where we think, you know, the church is here to serve me. I come to get things my way. I'm going to complain when I don't like things and everything should be tailored to me. But that's not at all what we're invited into throughout Scripture we're called to be contributors, not just consumers. You have gifts and talents and a personality and you have experiences that God wants to use to further his mission. We can't be content to just sit back and be consumers, trying to have it our way. But instead, we need to come together and be contributors to help fulfill our mission that Jesus has given us. 
So today, I want to close out this series by helping us understand how we need to shift from being insider-focused to outsider-focused. Because one of the most notable things about Jesus throughout the Gospels is that he consistently focuses on outsiders. Jesus was willing to go to the greatest lengths to meet people where they were at. He was willing to completely disregard cultural norms and religious beliefs even, all kinds of legalism. He was willing to go beyond that, to go meet people where they're at. He was willing to even break rules to reach people with his love. And you know what? He calls us to do the same thing. Now, one of my all-time favorite passages in the entire Bible is Luke chapter 15. And if you're familiar with Luke chapter 15, it is basically just three stories that Jesus tells. And all of these stories have something in common. They're all about something that is lost, and then it is found, and then there's a huge party. Great stories. Something's lost, something's found, and then there's a huge party. Now, one of these stories is maybe one of the most famous stories that's ever been told. It's the story of the prodigal son. And you remember how this all goes down. This young man, he's getting frustrated. He doesn't like living at home anymore. He's got so many more things he wants to do and see. So he goes to his father, and he says, I wish you were dead. I mean, essentially he's saying, you know, I wish you would drop dead today so I could have my inheritance right now. I'm sick of waiting around. Well, his father is a graceful, loving father, and he says, you can have your inheritance now. I'll give it to you. And so this young man takes all this money, takes all that he's owed. He goes to Vegas, and he blows it all. Next thing he knows, he's living on the streets, and he thinks, you know, this is awful. I mean, the servants at my father's farm, they live so much better than this. Maybe I can go back, get on my knees, and maybe he'll hire me as one of his workers. I mean, anything's better than living on the streets. So as he's making his way home, we get an image of his father. And his father isn't holding a grudge. His father isn't judging him day after day. No. The father is out by the mailbox every single day, wondering if today will be the day that his son returns. Every day he's out at the road, he's looking off into the horizon, just hoping to catch a glimpse of his son. And then one particular day, as he stands there and he looks off into the horizon, he sees a speck coming down the road and he starts to wonder, is it him? And next thing he knows, it's his son. And he doesn't wait with his arms crossed. He doesn't think of what he's going to say, how he's going to be angry, and how he's going to punish him. No, instead what he does is the most undignified thing a patriarch could do in the first century. He hikes up his robe and he runs down the road. Flimsy sandals, dusty road. He runs to his son and he wraps his arms around him. And it's a picture of God's heart for lost people. That's what our God is like. But there's still one more character in the story. Because the father is like, we're going to have the biggest party we've ever had now that my son is back. And his brother is like, you've got to be kidding me. Every day I do exactly what you ask. Every day I follow the rules. Every day I am the perfect son and you've never thrown me a party. 
And the father responds. He says, yeah, but your brother was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. We're going to celebrate. Now, there's another story that Jesus tells. It's about a woman who has ten coins, to which we might say, well, what's the big deal? Ten coins? It's a lot of money back then. She's got these ten coins, and every day she counts them, makes sure that she's got them. It's really her security blanket. But one day she counts them, and she's missing one. You might say, well, nine out of ten is pretty good. She's still doing all right. But she frantically turns her house upside down, and she searches and searches until she finds the one lost coin. And when she finds it, she calls all of her friends to come over and to celebrate because she's found the one lost coin. Jesus tells one more story. It's about a shepherd and his sheep. It's in Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 4. Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Again, this is a clear picture of God's heart for people. He is ready and willing to leave the 99 behind to go out and to seek and save the lost one. You see, our God is all about lost people being found. He's all about focusing on outsiders instead of just hanging out with the insiders. And you know, as a church that is following Jesus, and as followers of Jesus ourselves, this is the example that we have to follow in all that we do. I mean, just like the father in the prodigal son's story, we need to turn our eyes outward and keep our eyes on the road for those people who are coming back into a relationship with God. But you know, the tendency that we have as church people is to keep our eyes focused inward, to just hang out in our Christian bubble. But we need to keep our eyes on the road. We need to stay focused outside. Who are those people that need to hear the good news of Jesus? And you know what? We have to resist the urge to being like the older brother. The older brother who just wants things his way. The older brother who wants all the attention at the expense of everyone else who has yet to hear the good news. There was a movie that came out, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. It's a good family film called Cheaper by the Dozen. You might remember this film. It's a story of a family that has 12 kids and kind of all the things that they are involved in that. And there's a scene in the movie that I think is really powerful. And it's when one of the kids, one of the younger kids, runs away and goes missing. And in the movie, the entire family mobilizes to go and find this lost child. And I think it's such a great picture of what the church should look like, leaving the inside to go to the outside. 
Now, in the scene, they also encounter some negative folks. There's a boyfriend of one of the other kids who's so self-absorbed that he can't even stop what he's doing to go and search for the lost kid. There's a neighbor who's just like, well, you've got 12 kids. I mean, what do you expect? Of course you're going to lose one and doesn't have a heart for that lost child. But I think the thing that shines through in the scene is the heart of the father who will stop at nothing to go and find his lost son. So I want you to take a look at this clip. Mark ran away. Is he with you? No. We'll come help you look. It's me! <laughs> oh. Mark's missing. Oh. Take it to the barracks. Tell me the barracks. Let's go. Oh, great. Did you not hear me? My brother is missing. No, did you not hear me? I'm on TV! son mark ran away he's not here is he i always knew one of your kids would land on a milk carton 12 is just too big a number we'll help you look for him come on uh it's it's past dylan's bedtime though we're gonna look for him team let the police handle it you'll never find him oh we'll find him like you said 12 is a big number And he's got red hair and glasses, and there's a photo you can keep back. No luck. I've been everywhere. Thanks for looking. Where's Hank? He's not going to make the cut. I hope the family isn't to blame. They're totally to blame. Five officers checked the train and bus stations. He wouldn't get on a train or a bus. He might have. Those times when I ran away from Midland, I was going to get on a train and go to Chicago. My fair place in the world. Your favorite place in the world.
a great picture of God's heart for lost people. And also what a great picture of what the church should be mobilized together to go out and to help find people to be a part of God's mission. You see, being the church is not just hanging around with the found. It's going out to seek the lost. All throughout the Bible, we see lost people matter to God, and so they have to matter to us. We need to be a church that's passionate about reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to prioritize the needs of people who aren't yet in the kingdom, people who don't have a saving relationship with Christ. We must prioritize our mission to go and find the one lost sheep over the 99. See, the reality is a majority of us here today are already found. We are the 99. We're like the nine coins that aren't lost. And way too often, we're like the older brother who wants all the attention, who wants everything to be about him. We need to focus on who's not here yet. Who are the outsiders who need to become insiders instead of being content to just hang out in our Christian bubble? You see, most churches put the needs of the insiders over the outsiders. And that's why a majority of churches, as I said before, more than 80% of churches today are plateaued or dying. You see, the gravitational pull of any church is towards the 99. The gravitational pull of almost every church is toward the nine coins that are already found. And the gravitational pull of most any church today is towards the older brother instead of the lost brother. But in direct contrast, the gravitational pull of the father throughout the Bible is always in the opposite direction. He willingly leaves the 99. He celebrates finding one over the nine. And he celebrates the lost brother who's found. Now, I think we need to ask some tough questions as a church. Are we willing to make sacrifices in order for more people to be found? What are we willing to do to create an environment here that unchurched people love to attend? How can we make it more comfortable how can we allow people to come in and ask more questions and express their doubts and build relationships and then come to meet our risen Savior? But the thing is, if we're more concerned about what we want as insiders, we're not going to reach anyone. Now, the funny thing about churches, and I've been working in them for quite a few years now, is I rarely, if ever, receive an email with a complaint from someone who's not a part of our church. I don't get complaints from people outside our doors saying, you know, the music's too loud, I didn't like the third song, sermon was way too long, too many lights, not enough lights, I didn't like what people were wearing. No, I don't get complaints from outsiders, but we get a lot of complaints from insiders. And so what happens is in churches, we so often try to fulfill all of those complaints that we just become focused inward. We become all about insiders, and we forget about the outsiders. Gravitational pull of the Father is always in the opposite direction. He leaves the 99, 
He puts the one first. And he celebrates when lost people are found. Now Jesus, I think, makes it clear throughout his ministry, and he reminds us again and again that we need to be focused on outsiders. I heard a guy named Ed Stetzer, he's a great theologian, talk a few years ago. And he said, there are four commissions that Jesus gives us as his followers. You know, I think most of us know the Great Commission, right? And it's so important. But there's actually four commissions that we're given as his followers. So I'd like to go through those briefly with you this morning. First of all, we are sent out. When Jesus meets up with his disciples in John chapter 20, it's the first time that they see him face to face since his death and his resurrection. And they're hiding in an upper room. And the thing is, they didn't believe what Jesus had to say. And you might say, well, how do you know that? We know it by where they are at. They didn't set up lawn chairs at the tomb and on Easter morning count down from three. Three, two, one, there he is. No, they didn't actually believe he was going to rise again. They went and hid in an upper room. They turned their backs on Jesus. Yet he shows up, and with grace and forgiveness and love, he says, peace be with you. It's like, relax. But then he goes on and he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. God is a sender. Throughout Scripture, he sends people out. I mean, this is the equivalent of Jesus picking us on the playground to be a part of his team. Every one of us has disobeyed him and walked away from him at times. His disciples turned their back on him, but Jesus is like, hey, I still want you on my team. So incredibly graceful and loving. He says, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing to reach lost people. You have a mission. You understand what that means? It means you are a missionary. I've said this before, and you don't have to go buy a plane ticket. You don't have to pack a bag even. You're going on a mission trip this week, no matter where you go, to your home, to your neighborhood, to your workplace, to your school. We are sent out to represent Jesus wherever we go. Let's not just be content to show up for the show on a Sunday morning. But instead, let's go out and serve and represent Jesus wherever we go. We are sent out, number two, to all different kinds of people. Matthew 28, Jesus gives the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. There's a weird thing here, though, because when Jesus said this, there was no such thing as a nation. Nation states weren't formed for many hundreds of years later. And so what is Jesus getting at? He's saying, go and make disciples of all different kinds of people, not just the ones you're comfortable with, not just the ones who look like you, not just the ones you agree with. Be willing to go to the farthest places. And that doesn't necessarily mean you need a plane ticket again. Maybe the people across the street from you, maybe the people in the next community over who you have nothing in common with. We are sent out to all different kinds of people. Everyone needs to hear about Jesus. You see, the danger in any church is that it's so easy to love the way we do church more than we love the people who are far from God. The reality is most churches today choose tradition over their grandchildren. 
So what is the faith of the next generation worth to you? What is the faith of the next generation worth to you? What sacrifices are you willing to make? What preferences are you willing to set aside in order to reach people with the gospel? If we don't come to terms with that question, we're going to become another statistic, another church that just gradually fades away over the coming years. I don't know about you, but when I envision standing before God one day, I don't imagine that he's just going to compliment how beautiful our worship services are. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that we have wonderful worship services here. But if this is all we do, if all we do is just have a nice experience for insiders, I don't think God's going to be real impressed with that. Because I think he's going to ask, well, what about that person I put in your path? What about the person in the cubicle next to you? Did you invest into them? Did you build a relationship? Did you represent Jesus where you went? Great music, like we're blessed to have here. Great traditions, we have many. They're all well and good. But when there are people within a stone's throw of this place who are dying without coming to know Jesus, we have to keep our priorities in order. In Acts chapter 15, there's a big moment in the church. They're having a big church meeting, which tells us, you know, we haven't really gone too much far past that. I mean, church meetings have just kind of been a reality forever. But they're having this meeting, and it's an important discussion because they're trying to decide what kind of rules and regulations does there need to be for a Gentile coming to faith. All right, if someone who's a Gentile wants to become a Christian, do they have to become Jewish first? Do they need to follow the entire Jewish law before they can come to Christ? And you might say, well, is it really that big a deal? Well, it was a really big deal for the men, all right? Because if a man had to become Jewish, it meant a very sensitive surgery had to take place. Now, understand what this means. The new member classes in the early church were mainly women and children. (laughs) So they're debating back and forth. And finally, James, the brother of Jesus, stands up. Now, stop for a moment. Because if you need proof that Jesus was who he said he was, I think this is one of the greatest proofs of who he was. James, the brother of Jesus, believed his own brother was the son of God. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the son of God? James believed that his brother died and rose again and was the son of God. And he stood up in front of this entire meeting And in Acts 15, 19, this is what he said. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We need to remove obstacles from people coming to faith. Now, that might mean putting our preferences aside. It might mean making sacrifices. It might mean being more creative than we've ever been before. But Jesus makes it clear that we can't be content until we reach every person possible with the good news of the gospel. The message can never change. We have a high view of Scripture, 
It is the word of God. The message can't change, but how we do church needs to keep changing. And it always has. The early church didn't have heat and air conditioning. The early church didn't even have a Bible. It wasn't put together till the third or fourth century. We can't change the message, but we have to be willing to change how we do church. Number three, we are sent out to all different types of people with a message. In Luke 24, there's another account of Jesus appearing to his disciples, and he makes it clear what this message is. He says, there is forgiveness of sins to all who repent. We can't water down that message. It's offensive. It's hard to hear. But we have to come to terms with that every single person, every single one of us, is a sinner in need of a Savior. And it took Jesus dying on the cross, shedding his blood for each one of us to be made right with God. The greatest gift that's ever been given And our world needs to hear that good news. There is forgiveness of sins for all those who respond to God's gift. Who are you sharing the good news of Jesus with? Who are you willing to share your story of what Jesus has done in your life with? We are sent out to all different kinds of people with a message. But before you say, well, I wouldn't even know what to say. I mean, I can't do this. I'm not equipped. Well, number four, we are empowered by the Spirit. The very last time the disciples were with Jesus is in Acts chapter 1. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' presence within us. We are not alone. We have help. We have guidance. We have direction. Never forget his presence is with you. He will help you with the words to say, the things to do. The Holy Spirit's job is to make Jesus visible. Our job as a church is to make Jesus visible. We are sent out to all kinds of people, with a message, empowered by the Spirit. If you believe lost people matter to God, we have our commissions. We get to be a part of what God is doing in this world, finding lost people. Now, there's two words that I often use. You've probably heard me say them many times. But I think what we need to focus on as followers of Jesus is investing and inviting. Who are you investing in? And who are you inviting? Who are you building a relationship with, especially outside our bubble, outside of our doors, people far from God? Who are you investing in? And then when the Spirit opens the door, who are you going to invite? Who are you going to invite to join your small group, your Bible study, your serving opportunity? Who are you going to invite to come and join you at worship or at Christmas or Whatever else, we need to invest and invite. Because, you know, the days when people would just walk through the doors of a church on their own are pretty much over. I mean, back in the day, we could just open the doors, put Lutheran on the sign, and hundreds of people would show up. 
It's not true today. We need to build relationships. We need to go out and help find lost people. Now, if you were here on my very first Sunday, my installation day, you heard a story that my dad told. And I want to tell it again because it was such an impactful moment in my life. Back about 17, 18 years ago, I was a youth director in Bloomington. And one day, the senior pastor came and asked if I would preach at the Saturday evening service. Well, I'd never really done much preaching before, but I thought, all right, I'll take the opportunity. So my parents and my grandparents came to watch. And it was one of the all-time worst sermons ever preached. But my grandpa was such a positive guy, and so he was just happy to be there, and he's like, we got to go celebrate. Let's go out to dinner. So afterwards, we went to the Galleria in Edina, and it was jam-packed, like 6.30 on a Saturday night. So we put our name in at the restaurant we wanted to eat at, and they said, you know, it'll be about an hour wait. So we went out back into the mall area, and there was a fountain, and everybody was kind of gathered around the fountain. We found a place to sit, and my dad and my grandpa and I were sitting there. And we started to observe something that would keep repeating. See, the hostess in the restaurant would have an open table, and she would announce a name inside the doors. And many times, nobody got up, nobody came up. So she'd walk a little ways over, and she'd open up the door, and she'd yell out into the mall a little bit. She'd yell the name. Nobody came. After a while, she would kind of sigh. She'd open up the door. She'd walk all the way out to the fountain, and she'd announce the name again. And then the family would get up and come in and get their table. Well, after watching this for about 15, 20 minutes, my grandpa turned to my dad and I and he said, this is a perfect picture of the church. He said, far too often as a church, we're willing to just announce people's names inside. You know, we talk about lost people. We talk about wanting to reach people. But we don't really do much about it. We just kind of stay in here where we're comfortable says, no, today what we need to do is get outside the doors. We need to go out and call people by name. We need to help them understand that we have a God who loves them, who sent his son to die for them, and that they are welcome to come in and encounter the risen Christ. You see, we are sent out to all different kinds of people with a message empowered by the Spirit. So the question I want to leave you with this morning is how is God calling you to be a part of his mission to find lost people today? What is the faith of the next generation worth to you? What are you willing to sacrifice? No matter whether you've been a believer for 75 years or 75 days, we all have the same mission. We are sent out to all different kinds of people with a message empowered by the Spirit. So let's keep our eyes focused on the road. Let's stay focused on the outside and not just on the inside. Let's not be consent, content to just be a holy huddle. But instead, let's encourage each other and spur each other on as we go out into the world to tell the greatest story that's ever been told. Let's stay focused on outsiders and not just insiders. Amen? Let's pray.